This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse. Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi in for Leslie Marshall just for the next hour before Leslie rejoins us. She's actually fighting through uh, a case of laryngitis. She's got like a 102 degree fever, but she would not miss uh, the next hour. Uh, After this hour, she's going to be joined by former presidential candidate for the Democratic Party and former Democratic governor of Maryland, Martin O'Malley, followed by uh, a great author, David K. Johnson, who uh, has written a great book about Donald Trump. So you'll definitely want to stay tuned after this hour. But uh, this hour, we actually have uh, some very interesting information regarding ballot initiatives in 2016. And there's a good chance that your state has a ballot initiative uh, because there are a lot of them, which we're going to get into right now. But first, I want to introduce my good friend of uh, the show and good friend of Leslie's as well, who joins me almost every week, Brad Bannon, who runs Bannon Communications Research, a polling, message development, and media firm which helps labor unions, progressive issue groups, and Democratic candidates win public affairs and political campaigns. Brad is also a senior advisor to and contributing editor for the website Tiller4U.com. That's T-I-L-L-E-R, the number 4-Y-O-U.com. That is the social media network for politics. And he also lectures in political science at Salem State University in Salem, Massachusetts. You can follow him on Twitter at Brad Bannon. That's B-R-A-D-B-A-N-N-O-N. And his website is BannonCR.com. Brad, how's it going? Hey, Mark. How are you doing? Good, good. I'm sure you're looking forward to the uh, to the World Series tonight. Great matchup uh, between uh, two stellar pitchers and uh, two stellar teams. I almost I almost don't want either of these teams to lose because I, I'd like to see either of them win. But uh, I guess just because of how long it's been, I'm I'm pulling for the Cubs. What about you? Yeah, uh, as a Red Sox fan, I'm pulling for the Cubs mainly because uh, uh, we, uh, the Red Sox, went 84 years without winning a World Series. Uh, the Cubs have been, are over 100 now, so I definitely sympathize with them because it took a long time to get one back to Boston. I totally, uh, I totally hear you. Over 100 years, <laughs> they definitely do. As as a Buffalonian, I know, I know the pain. Um, but uh, on to the 2016 ballot initiatives. There are just so many this year, and I there I found a great piece um, that I know you got to take a look at, Brad. And I would definitely suggest uh, after this hour, our listeners uh, take a look at it. it's by Meg Anderson of NPR, and it's entitled "From Pot to Guns to School Funding." Here's what's on the ballot in your state. Um, and this November, November eighth, there are 156 measures 
being voted on in 35 states in the District of Columbia. California is in the lead, though, with a whopping 17 measures on its ballot. And although these ballot measures are voted on state by state, there are some big national themes that we're seeing with nine states voting on it. The most popular ballot measure this year is marijuana. Uh, Some states are asking voters whether to legalize it for recreational use, others for medicinal use. Uh, Another sign of the times, at least seven states are voting on changing their elections in some way, be it limiting campaign contribution limits or changing how citizens vote. Uh, There's other prominent themes across America, like education, guns, uh, tobacco, minimum wage, and the death penalty. And we're going to try to get to all of them this hour. But, Brad, I want to start with marijuana. Uh, We have nine states voting on some form of cannabis legalization on November 8th. You've got Arizona, California, Maine, Massachusetts, your state, and Nevada, or excuse me, Nevada, excuse me, are voting to, (laughs) I don't want to make that mistake, are voting to, to legalize recreational marijuana, and then you have four other states, Arkansas, Florida, Montana, and North Dakota, they're voting to legalize medicinal marijuana. Now, even before these nine states vote, which some people may not know, there are currently, half the United States, there are currently 25 states that have legalized marijuana in some form. So that number after November 8th could rise to as high as 34 states. Knowing all of this, Brad, I want to know, you know, as a policy person and also someone who follows public opinion polls, which we'll get to, but before we get to the specific polling, just as a general kind of theme, you know, knowing the nation like you do, where do you think we're heading with marijuana policy as a country as a whole, Brad? Well, uh, first of all, uh, if you look at the polls, uh, grassroots support for marijuana legalization is at an all-time high. Uh, And, uh, you know, at some point, it's an idea you can't stop, basically. Uh, I think most uh, states are moving in that direction. Uh, There are at least a few states that already have legalized use of small amounts of pot, uh, Oregon, Colorado, California, uh, and uh, nothing horrible seems to happen uh, in those states. So I suspect a lot of these states will approve it, uh, including Massachusetts. And I think it's just a matter of time. Well, you know, at the federal level, one of the things that really doesn't make a lot of sense at the federal level is marijuana is, uh, in the U.S. legal code, uh, classified as a Class A drug with heroin. Uh, and uh, I think if Hillary Clinton's president, I think one of the things she may do uh, is move marijuana. I don't think she's going to push for legalization nationally, but I do think she'll move, uh, try to get marijuana moved down out of the Class A category uh, with heroin. Uh, but at the state level, it's just a matter of time, and it's a matter of time because if you look at the polls on, on, on marijuana legalization, uh, millennials are overwhelmingly in favor of marijuana legalization, and they're becoming the largest voting bloc in the United States. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, it's just a matter of time. Brad, I'm happy you brought up the, the the way that the substance is classified. A lot of Americans might not know that you're right. It's classified not only in the same substance as heroin, but also things like cyanide, I mean poisons, that so you can't study them in a way, just so people know, where you can actually have our government study them properly and figure out 
the effects of them, whether they be positive or negative. So people who make arguments for or against them don't have uh, as much information as they could. So I think that's something that really, and we are seeing bipartisan support for that, that needs to be done. And I hope you're right that, um, you know, whoever our next president is, I think Hillary Clinton obviously has a better chance if you look at her policy towards marijuana of declassifying the drug or, or however you want to call it, basically, so it can be studied. Um According to a new Pew Research study, which was out October 12th, so very recent as far as public polling goes, Brad, something that you alluded to, 57% of U.S. adults say the use of marijuana should be made legal, while only 30% say it should be illegal. So that's a 20-point gap, so that's massive. Now, the thing I thought was also very interesting is a decade ago, opinion on legalizing marijuana was nearly the complete reversed with only... 32% favoring legalization, while 60% were opposed. I mean, that is, a for any public polling, especially on an, an issue this big, Brad, that is a massive change over the past decade. And I, you, you started to allude to it a little bit, but I want you to expand more on why you think this has changed so drastically over the past decade, because that's a massive swing, Brad. Yeah, it is, and uh, it's largely uh, a function of age. Uh, if you look at the polls, either national polls or state polls, you find that seniors uh, generally uh, disapprove of marijuana legalization, uh, and young voters uh, overwhelmingly favor. And essentially what you do is the millennial share of the voting pool grows, uh, support for uh, marijuana legalization grows, and the other thing is that uh, the uh, growth and support for, ma- with marijuana, for marijuana legalization tracks pretty closely, not exactly, but tracks pretty closely uh, with the change in opinion on gay marriage. If you go back six or seven years, you would find an overwhelming majority of Americans against gay marriage. Uh, now there's a clear majority of Americans Americans who favor gay marriage, and their both uh, support for both are increasing, largely because of the attitudes of millennial voters who uh, are growing to be a bigger part of the voting population. Yeah, Brad, you're, what you said is completely backed up by fact, as Brad really, you know, is kind of in my uh, camp, I would say, of our opinions. You know, we make it clear whether or not, like, okay, this is just my opinion or I'm floating out there, or it's based in fact, but I've noticed Brad is similar where you really try to find pu- public policy polling that's a tongue twister, to really back it up. And what you said, Brad, according to this new Pew study, is dead on because you have young adults disproportionately driving the shift toward public support of the drug, though support is rising among other generations as well, I want to point out. But millennials, so those ages 18 to 35 this year, are more than twice as likely to support legalization of marijuana as they were in 2006. So that's really interesting. You have millennials themselves changing. It's 71% today. Ten years ago, it was only 34% in that age group, and they're significantly more likely to support legalization than other generations, or I should say, actually, we are. Both Andrew and I um, are in the millennial uh, uh, generation. I'm 34, so I'm just on the cusp. Andrew's, uh, Andrew, I got about a decade on him, but, um, you know, I would say that, personally, I see that support amongst other millennials. Although, the other thing is support for marijuana legalization, and I'll just read the, you know, I want to get to this, and we'll go to the break and come back with Brad. Support for marijuana legalization has also increased among members of Gen X and baby boomers, which is age is 36 to 51 and 52 to 70 this year, respectively. More than half of Gen Xers, 57%, support legalization, which is a considerable jump 
from 1990, where it was just 21%. And then a majority of baby boomers, which I thought was pretty interesting, 56% also support legalization. That's up from just 17% in 1990. So 17% to 56%. Now, that's that's a longer time. That's 1990 to um, 2016. So you're talking 26 years. But that's a, that's still a, a quite a big change. And the other thing that's interesting is if you look along political lines, by more than two to one, Democrats favor legalizing marijuana over having it be being illegal, 66 to 30%. That's Democrats. More Republicans oppose marijuana legalization, 55% to 41%, which is, you know, a decent gap, but not massive. So... Um, uh, when we get back, we're actually going to go to other ballot initiatives talking with elections, um, which affects not only there's some potential changes to campaign contribution limits, um, the way people vote, party affiliations. We're going to get to all that after the break. If you'd like to join us on this or any other ballot initiatives this year, the number to do so is 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. This is Mark Romaldi joined by Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall just until the end of the hour. And then don't forget, we have Leslie coming up who's going to be interviewing Maryland, former Maryland government governor excuse me martin o'malley uh who is also a democratic presidential candidate as many remember uh this past year he's going to be talking about the election with leslie that's going to start at 406 p.m eastern we'll be right back after this quick commercial break life liberty and the pursuit of truth the leslie marshall show 8886 leslie That's our dedication to uh, the end of the conversation regarding marijuana legalization. A little last dance with Mary Jane from uh, Tom Petty, of course. Uh, Another uh, big theme uh, for 2016 on these ballot initiatives, um, you know, potentially the next biggest thing after marijuana is uh, elections. You have campaign contributions on the ballot in four states. Uh, Changes in voting itself is on the ballot in three states, and two states will potentially make changes regarding party affiliation, Brad. Let's start with campaign contributions. You have Missouri and South Dakota uh, both having measures that would limit political donations. South Dakota's would also create a system to publicly finance state elections, and Washington has a measure that would create a publicly financed system as well. You've got California and Washington with measures that would urge state elected officials to push for free speech to apply to individuals and not corporations. Both obviously are in response to Citizens United uh, versus FEC, the Supreme Court case that said that based on freedom of speech, the government cannot restrict political expenditures by corporations and independent political uh, committees. Brad, what are your thoughts on these uh, measures regarding campaign contributions in, in these four states? Uh, well, first of all, uh, a political scientist once said uh, that the states are the laboratory of democracy. And I think that's what you're seeing this year. Uh, obviously, you can look at the polls, and most Americans uh, are very hostile uh, to politics and to government and to politicians. Uh, and since uh, there's nothing going on at the national level, 
to change the situation. Uh, you have people in individual states uh, who are trying to reform politics. And, I, you know, they feel that if there was less money in the system, uh, it wouldn't be as bad as corrupt. And I think, uh, I think they're right. Uh, I think one of the biggest problems, especially at the national level, is there's so much money floating around in Washington. If you try to do something different or to change a fundamental policy, it's almost impossible to do uh, because you have established interest groups uh, with a ton of money who uh, resist change uh, in any way they can, in sp- in ter- and including spending millions of dollars. So I think you're not going to have you're going to the only way you get real government reform and you get movement on fundamental issues facing the nation uh, is to reduce the amount of money in the system, uh, and that's what people in these states are doing. Yeah, I think you're totally right, and that's one of the reasons, you know, a lot of people who, like myself, who, you know, supported Senator Sanders really gained, he gained our attention, was his big push to overturn Citizens United and raise the issue, and it's something that Secretary Clinton has made a big part of her campaign, you know, brought up in the last debates regarding the Supreme Court, because as you said, the same reasoning, Brad, because not not a lot is going on on the federal level, that we don't have a good chance of doing it there, even though Secretary Clinton did pledge a constitutional amendment in her first 30 days to overturn Citizens United, she followed up by saying she will only appoint Supreme Court justices who understand what a disaster that Citizens United has been. So I think you're right on that level. In the meantime, we're only seeing it at the state level. Um, We do have a uh, question from uh, uh, Ishmael in uh, Virginia, who is also uh, a good friend of the show. Uh, Ishmael, go ahead with your question. Yes, sir. And I just thought about a second one after, but I'll ask the first one question. Uh, with all these ballot initiatives that we've seen throughout the country, does it indicate the sh- that which shift of the country uh, is? Does the, is the country shifting more toward progressive? I and mean, is there any way you can determine with all these ballots where the country is shifting? Uh, let's. We'll get to your first question, and then uh, we'll let you come back after the break with the second question. Um, you know, I I think so. I think, and I'll let Brad comment on this in a minute. I think you're seeing with if you look at uh, a lot of these ballot initiatives, whether it's on um, marijuana, whether it's on elections, whether it's on gun control. Um, you know, almost any uh, policy that you see in a lot of these states, I think it would indicate that. Um, we only have about a minute here, so I'm going to let Brad comment after the break. If you'd like to join us, you can do so at eight 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 six Leslie. That's 888-653-7543. We're talking about uh, 2016 ballot initiatives. Uh, As I mentioned before, there are 156 measures being voted on in 35 states in the District of Columbia. Uh, We already went over marijuana. We're now going over um, election policy as well as a general trends, as Ishmael and Virginia brought up, is, you know, are we seeing with all these ballot initiatives, is the country moving in a more progressive direction? Uh, I think if you're looking at these initiatives initially being proposed, I would say so. I think It'll also be interesting to see what what passes and what doesn't. Brad brought up a good point, which is the money in the system uh, entrenched in in keeping things the way they are. That's one of the toughest parts about passing these ballot initiatives because you have powerful interests in a lot of ways trying to prevent them from being passed. So we'll talk about more of that after the break. 8886 Leslie, Mark Romaldi, and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 888-6-LESLIE. 
Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Romaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall. We are also joined by uh, a good friend of the show, Ishmael in Virginia. Before we go back to Ishmael, I wanted to give Brad a chance to answer Ishmael's question. And for those of you who may not have been listening, Ishmael had asked whether or not all these, uh, a lot of these ballot initiatives being proposed in 2016 uh, are an indication that our country is becoming more progressive. Uh, Brad, go ahead with your thoughts. Uh, the short answer to Ismail's question is yes, it does mean the country is becoming more progressive. And the reason the country is becoming more progressive uh, goes, we discussed this in the first uh, half hour, uh, is essentially for a generation now, uh, baby boomers have been running American politics. Uh, they're the biggest voting bloc uh, they used to be. Now the millennials have overtaken them. And if you look at the attitudes of baby boomers, uh, their, their attitudes are relatively conservative. Uh, and remember, a lot of baby boomers, or at least some baby boomers, came of age uh, while Ronald Reagan was president. Uh, and that definitely had an influence on the thinking of the generation. The trouble is, uh, the opportunities for progressive, though, is that the millennials who have recently replaced uh, the uh, uh, baby boomers as the largest voting group are a lot more liberal than baby boomers. Uh, they're most on, on social issues. Uh, you know, probably my guess is that uh, on gay marriage, uh, for instance, or marijuana, you probably have 70 to 80 percent of the uh, millennials support those things. Uh, and uh, as they grow in influence, uh, they're going to make the country more progressive than it is now. Now, if you look at Congress, the biggest chunk of members of Congress are baby boomers. And the reality is they're gradually going to be replaced by millennials over the next 10 years. And I think you'll have a fundamentally different political environment that will work in favor of progressives. I think it's a good point, Brad. It's a, it's a common theme we've seen as we even talked about the policy uh, on support for legalizing marijuana and how it's changed over the past decade. Ishmael, I know you had a second question, so go ahead. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, you know, I really think the biggest threat to this country is the Citizen United. And, and is there any way we can have, like, a ballot measure throughout the country to eliminate Citizen United and state by state? Well, the the biggest way, say you wanted to do it on a federal level, the, the two ways that I know of anyway are, well, there's a couple ways, I should say. There's three different ways. First of all, you could have Congress propose a bill and just like anything else, pass it through the House, the Senate, and then have the president sign it into law. That obviously isn't going to happen because Republicans, as I mentioned, uh, are, have not supported even the smallest changes to Citizens United like the Disclose Act, which was something that the Democratic Senate senators proposed, which would have just simply said, all you have to do is disclose where this money is coming from. They even filibustered that. So while Republicans have control of either body of Congress, uh, that's not going to happen. The other way you could do it, which is even less likely, in my opinion, is a constitutional amendment, because that needs two-thirds of both the House and the Senate. The third way, which is the most likely, which is something that I've been trying to harp on and, you know, just beat on as much as I can and get people to, to think about, is through the Supreme Court, because that's where it originated. That's where it can be overturned. Obviously, Eshmael, as you know, we have four liberal justices, four conservative justices after the passing of Justice Antonin Scalia. If you have a fifth 
justice, a fifth liberal justice, or just the fifth justice period that is committed to overturning Citizens United, there's plenty of cases at the lower level which would then kick up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court would then likely rule and have a five to four decision overturning Citizens United. That would that would cover the entire country. So those are the three clearest ways I know of, Brad. I don't know, maybe maybe I missed something. Well, uh, no, I mean that's basically it. And realistically, you're right, Mark. Realistically, the only way uh, that campaign that Citizens United is going to go away uh, is on the Supreme Court, uh, because as you said, is incredibly difficult to get a constitutional amendment passed. Uh, you have to get two-thirds vote in both houses of Congress, which would never happen. And then you have to have 37 of the 50 states ratify the amendment. That's right. And that's why we have so few constitutional amendments. It's really hard to do. Uh, the first 10 amendments, the Bill of Rights, were enacted in 1789. Since then, we've only amended the Constitution 17 times in 230 years. Uh, and the reality, this election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, uh, is the importance of it, is it is going to determine who the next justice or two are going to be. And like you said, uh, with uh, Justice Scalia on the court, there was a five to four conservative majority. Uh, if Hillary Clinton has president, it becomes president, and she has a chance to uh, pick uh, a Supreme Court justice, uh, all of a sudden you have a five to four progressive uh, majority, and that means uh, there are going to be threats uh, on court rulings uh, in favor of reducing gun violence, uh, in base- and also uh, basically rule uh, that uh, Citizens United was a wrong constitutional position. So it's really about that. I mean, a lot of Republicans don't like Trump, but they are supporting him because they are deathly afraid, and they should be, of Hillary Clinton picking a new uh, progressive judge, which would fundamentally change the direction of the Supreme Court. Absolutely. And you would see other things uh, like the Voting Rights Act be returned, which was, you know, just another thing that was insane that was overruled by the Supreme Court. This is the first presidential election in decades where we haven't had the full protection of the Voting Rights Act. And you've seen voter suppression ramp up uh, in many states. So that's another huge decision that could be changed. So that's why I say to people who, you know, and it, thankfully, it seems like the number is, is becoming smaller, who supported Senator Sanders and, you know, are on the fence about whether or not to support Hillary Clinton. I mean, listen to his message. His number one issue was overturning Citizens United because of how it affects income inequality. And we have a chance to do that by voting for Secretary Clinton. So that's as clear as I can possibly be on that issue. Brad and Ishmael, thank you for the conversation on that. Uh, next, I want to go to uh, Max in Charlotte, who actually also has a question regarding uh, Citizens United and uh, the court. So Max, thanks for joining us and go ahead with your question, please. Okay, uh, what, what part of the Supreme what part of the law uh, of a law that the Supreme Court used to rule in favor of uh, you know companies were were uh, allowed to do whatever they're doing you know now that people don't like and they're doing the Citizens United you know what so, part of the law was made legal that that could be overturned Are you asking? Yeah, yeah, you know, so sort of like people are talking about overturning Citizens United, but if that's what it's actually called, you know, 
What, what part did the Supreme Court use of, of a so, law to use in favor of uh, giving corporation the right to do whatever they're doing? Okay, so basically what happened was, and the ironic thing is it surrounds Hillary Clinton, is there this group, which uh, political groups, was actually called Citizens United, uh, and it made a... What, what they called uh, a movie, which was really just a giant negative campaign ad against Hillary Clinton in the 2008 election while the primaries were still going on. And they were trying to have it not fall under the um, arena of political, you know, or of politics, essentially. They were arguing it was a movie and it was ruled that it was a political ad. So they. They had it appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court went way above what they were asked to do. The Supreme Court, as you know, is really not supposed to, whenever they can avoid it, quote-unquote, create legislation. And they went way above uh, beyond, uh, above and beyond of ruling whether or not this was a political ad or a movie, and instead took the extraordinary step of saying that uh, political spending was the same as you, me, and Brad, Max, speaking as free speech. They said political spending was free speech, and the way that they they somehow argued that that was, was the case was because they said corporations are actual people and have the same rights as people. So it was an insane decision in many ways, but we were powerless to do anything about it because they had five uber-conservative justices that made that ruling. And once that ruling was made, we were essentially helpless to overturn it because that you had these five radical uh, neoconservative justices. So the way that this could be changed simply is there's many states who have already made uh, laws to have their own uh, elections not be affected by Citizens United. Once you would have a fifth liberal justice or a fifth just common sense justice, however you want to say, who would say that, okay, this was uh, the wrong decision, it would be appealed up to the the Supreme Court. The only reason you're not seeing any appeals to the Supreme Court right now, essentially, in my mind, is because they know it's deadlocked four to four. So if you had a fifth justice, you would have a state decision or a local decision regarding elections that would be appealed up to the Supreme Court. The case would be reheard. The five justices now, who would be in the majority, would overrule it and say, essentially, corporations are not people. Corporations do not have the same rights as human beings of free speech. It would overturn Citizens United, and it would return us to not a perfect system, essentially. It would still need to be approved. But if you remember, the election system we had before January 2010, when Citizens United went into effect, was... You had a certain amount, Brad. I don't remember the amount per elected official you could elect. It was like two. Was it like two thousand three hundred dollars per person? Yeah, it was uh, twenty three hundred dollars. And now, fundamentally, there not are no limits or restrictions on campaign spending. And you're right about the, the Supreme Court. They're but but the, here, can I say something? But you know, the Supreme Court they were reading something and they said, okay, well, this this right here. It is just like abortion, you know, that they were reading something, and this is what they applied the to, uh, and rule in favor of that law. So yeah, I, as Marty said, okay, I, I'm a member of the ACLU. All right, Max, hold on, hold on, Max, 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 hold on one second, one second. I promise I'll let you respond. Just, just let Brad jump in real quick, and then I promise I'll let you respond, Max. Okay. Well, uh, Mark is right. The issue before the uh, Supreme Court uh, was uh, whether or not uh, the limits on campaign contributions uh, was a violation of the Freedom of Speech Clause in the First Amendment. Uh, 
and the Citizens United, which is the name of the group uh, that, uh, you know, was the uh, principal in this case, said that by denying corporations uh, the right to contribute to campaigns, you were violating their First Amendment rights to free speech. Now, what was key in the court's mind is this was the first time in basically more than 100 years that a Supreme Court has ruled that a corporation has the same rights as people. Now, back in the 19th century, that was a given for the court, that, you know, corporations were people. Uh, but the court got away from that, and this is the first time in 100 years, at least, where the Supreme Court ruled that a corporation has the same rights as a person. Uh, and they said that uh, the laws, campaign finance reforms, uh, were infringing on corporations' First Amendment right to free speech. All right, uh, Max, um, thank you for your patience there. Uh, I j- I'm going to promise I'm going to let you respond, but we have a commercial break. As soon as we get back, Max, you're going to be able to respond. We're also going to get to another caller as well. If you'd like to join us, the number to do so is 888-6LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. Having a great conversation regarding campaign finance and the specific decision of Citizens United uh, versus FEC, which could potentially be overturned uh, after this election if we get a fifth uh, liberal justice on the Supreme Court, which we're talking about. Now, uh, there's also other ballot initiatives we are uh, potentially going to get to regarding uh, gun control, regarding education, the death penalty, uh, uh, assisted suicide, um, which some people call it, uh, in Colorado. Uh, So if you'd like to join us, the number to do so is 888-6-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. This is Mark Grimaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall, and we'll be right back after this brief commercial break. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Romaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall. Uh, due to the great response we've had this hour, we're actually going to be back uh, from 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern after uh, Leslie does the following hour, uh, which, again, she's going to be interviewing uh, former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley and then David K. Johnson, who is uh, the author of a great book about uh, Donald Trump. Uh, so if you'd like to uh, join uh, myself and Brad, if you can't get in now because the lines are full, you're welcome. Welcome to join us at 5 p.m. Eastern. Uh, we're going to go right back to the phones due to time. Uh, we're going to go uh, back to Max in Charlotte and let him finish up and then get to the other calls. Uh, Mac, go, uh, Max, go ahead. Okay, here. Uh, okay, I read this book, and it's called The History of Periods and Commas. Okay, and if you read that book, when you read the Second Amendment, the one I think that's the one that they use for uh, firearms. Yes, that's correct. Uh, every, okay, and it, when you read it, you, you know, you'll come to the conclusion that the three commas and one period says that when you, if you use it right, that it states that you have to be in a militia yes. and you should have a weapon and you should support, you should report to duty when we have a war. That's the way it is really written. Okay, if you study uh, history and, and what periods and commas mean. So what, what I'm getting at when you get to the First Amendment and, and this Citizens United. You know, the way that they rule it, you know, that, uh, that uh, about freedom of speech, that they could, they could change it 
to whatever they want. You, you know, the American people believe that they are allowed to have weapons and not be in a, in, in a militia and support and, and report to duty. That's no, why you're we right. have Max, stop laws and this, stuff like that. This past, that. you're exactly right. This this current Supreme Court also, excuse me, the previous Supreme Court, uh, when they had the conservative majority, also changed the way that the Second Amendment was read for the first time in history and made it so that they were. Uh, basically disregarding the part that said for a well-regulated militia. So as Brad said, that's another decision that could be revisited if we had a, a, a liberal majority on the Supreme Court. There's so many of them. Uh, but due to time, I want to stick to Citizens United. Our next caller is uh, Rod in New Jersey. Rod, go ahead with your thoughts. Uh, yes. Uh, wanted to. Uh, I think we need to add some amendments to the uh, Constitution, uh, particularly uh, with regard to the Supreme Court and the way uh, justices are appointed. I also think we need... Uh, a couple more justices, and to dilute the uh, power of any one president, uh, so far as appointing justices are concerned. Yeah. I th- uh, also, I believe the uh, judicial canons should apply to the Supreme Court, and we need to do something about, uh, you know, even though the states should control elections, I think there should be some federal standards. I heard something today I couldn't believe. Uh, Alabama has uh, a law on the books that allows uh, a uh, county clerk to uh, reject a uh, uh, voter for uh, committing a crime of moral turpitude. Wow. I mean, that's insane, and it just shows. I, I think all of your points are very well received on this end, um, and I would honestly support those, Rod. Due to time, I just want to get to uh, our other two callers because we have three minutes left. Uh, so if our callers could please be brief. If we don't get to you, you're more than welcome to join us at 5 p.m. Eastern at the same, same number. Uh, next, we go to Felix in uh, New Mexico. Felix, go ahead with your thoughts. Yeah, hi, Brad. Hi, Mark. Hi. Uh, be brief. Uh, you know me, Brad. I'm from Sri- uh, New Mexico. I'm a U.S. citizen from Sri Lanka. I spoke to you before. Oh, Brief. yeah. Yeah. Hi, Mark. Brief. I already, I'm a Bernie supporter. I voted, voted for Hillary. Here are the three reasons. My family, my wife, and uh, my son, who is deaf, he's on Medicaid. Three reasons. Number one, Supreme Court. Number two, I'm a certified pharmacy tech, healthcare. Number three, I'm a practicing Catholic, Mark. I think I told you this. Uh, Trump is lying about being a pro-life. He's lying. Yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm a I'm a Catholic as well, and I think yep. that you know, if you look at the what even Pope Francis, for instance, his big work about that, you know, if you want to look at the whole faith, we need to take care of the earth and do things to uh, reverse the negative effects of climate change. And Trump calls it a Chinese hoax. So uh, another great point also regarding health care and campaign finance. You know, Felix, thank you very much for the call. Always love it when you call. Next, I want to go to uh, Joe in Arizona on line five. Joe, thank you very much for uh, calling. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, my quick question is just that if corporations are considered people, why don't they have the same requirements as us as far as being drafted, such in a war that their assets are have to be used for the war or that they have to strictly be American, you know, that they have to have the American interest or any other things, or even when they go for bankruptcy, that that's considered such a suicide or even when one company devours another company, that cannibalism. Like, why, are, why, why do they not have the same requirements 
I, I think your analogies are perfect because it shows how ridiculous it is to say that corporations are people. Another very simple standard is why can't corporations be jailed then for the crimes that they commit or at least the heads of these corporations be held to those standards? Um, it shows just how ridiculous it is to say that corporations are the same as people. Brad, I want to give you the last minute, and I know you'll be rejoining us at 5 p.m. Eastern. Okay, well, uh, what I would say is that there's an ex- legal uh, expression in the legal community, which is uh, the law is whatever the justices of the Supreme Court say it, say it is. And that's possible because you look at the Constitution, many parts are incredibly vague, and you need someone to, you know, fill in the details. And that's what the Supreme Court does. And it varies from justice to justice, uh, which is why we need at least one more more progressive uh, justice uh, so we can uh, interpret uh, the Constitution so that corporations aren't considered people. Uh, For example, uh, Common Cores is uh, pushing a constitutional amendment which says basically people are people and corporations aren't, and that would solve your Citizens United problem. Brad, great job there. We're going to be back at 5 p.m. Eastern. Leslie will be with us in about six minutes. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi again in uh, for Leslie with good friend of the show, Brad Bannon, continuing our conversation from 3 p.m. Eastern on 2016 ballot initiatives. For those of you uh, who were previously listening, for those who weren't, uh, just a reminder, Brad runs Bannon Communications Research, which is a polling, message development, and media firm, which helps labor unions, progressive issue groups, and Democratic candidates win public affairs and political campaigns. He's also a senior advisor to and contributing editor for Tiller4U.com. That's T-I-L-L-E-R, the number 4-Y-O-U.com, which is the social media network for politics. He lectures in poli-sci at Salem State University in Salem, Massachusetts, and you can follow him on Twitter at Brad Bannon. That's B-R-A-D-B-A-N-N-O-N. And his website is BannonCR.com. Last hour, we got into some of the biggest themes and ballot initiatives uh, in 2016. Just as a reminder, there's 156 measures in 35 states and the District of Columbia this November 8th. So a massive haul of ballot initiatives, seemingly, Um, although some years it's been higher. But the biggest themes this year seem to be marijuana with five states voting on recreational use, four states voting on medicinal use. That would add to potentially the 25 states that already have uh, and the District of Columbia, which already have some form of legalization of marijuana. We talked about campaign finance reform. You're more than welcome to join in on any thoughts regarding those ballot initiatives that we discussed the previous hour that we were together but now we are going to uh, move on to a couple of other issues that had some uh, big themes that we were unable to get to uh, last hour Um, one of the things that we didn't get to is party affiliation brad Um, colorado is voting to let people who are not affiliated with a party vote in the state's primary and then south dakota is also voting to get rid of closed primaries and in addition 
is asking voters to do away with party labels on ballots, although that wouldn't apply to the presidential and vice presidential uh, races. We did hear complaints against uh, certain states that had closed primaries during this election cycle. Brad, what do you think the measures? What do you think of the measures in Colorado and South Dakota? And should more states follow suit? In your opinion? Well, uh, you know, one thing uh, we should uh, just, uh, talk about is that the United States Constitution uh, specifically lets states regulate elections, even federal elections. Uh, now. Uh, this, these two initiatives you're discussing are directly in response uh, to the Democratic presidential primary. Uh, it, going back to uh, the battle between Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, uh, there was a deep split bipartisanship. Uh, independents, uh, a clear majority of independents who voted in Democratic primaries voted for Bernie Sanders, and a clear majority of Democrats who voted in Democratic primaries voted for Hillary Clinton. The problem is, in a lot of states, including the two you mentioned, you can only, for instance, in, in many states, uh, you can only vote in a Democratic primary if you're a registered Democrat, or and you can only vote in a Republican primary if you're a registered Republican. And what happens in that situation is that you leave independents uh, with absolutely no role in picking the two-party nominees. Uh, New York is that way, Pennsylvania is that way, uh, where you can only vote uh, in your party's primary, and independents can't vote in primaries at all. Uh, and a lot of people feel, and I think for justification, uh, essentially what happened was uh, because of the state laws as they exist, uh, they, you excluded a lot of independents who wanted to vote for Bernie Sanders. Uh, so, uh, you know, the question is, uh, do you want to open up the process? Now, the argument that party people make is, why should independents have a role in choosing the Democratic nominee uh, or the Republican nominee? Uh, if they wanted to do that, they could be Republicans or Democrats. And it should be up to, you know, party people to choose the party's nominee. On the other hand, people say, well, you know, independents deserve a voice, even if they're not Democrats or Republicans. Uh, they should have a voice uh, in uh, choosing the two-party nominees. Uh, so, uh, and my guess is that because what happened in the Sanders-Clinton campaign, the trend is going to be towards open primaries uh, where independents uh, can vote uh, in either presidential election. Now, here in Massachusetts, uh, if you're a registered Democrat, you have to vote in the Democratic primary. If you're a registered Republican, you have to vote in the Republican primary. But if you're what we call unenrolled in either of the two political parties, you can choose whether to vote in the Democratic Party primary or the Republican primary. And I think the movement's in that direction to have more open primaries so independents can participate. I think it makes sense, especially if you you know our elected officials in the country in general wants a higher rate of voter participation. This is a good way to get people involved early in the process and keep them involved versus making them feel disenfranchised. And if they feel like they don't have a voice, then why do they think they should turn out you know for maybe a general election at times where they didn't have as much of a voice and, and 
figuring out who the final candidates are. So I definitely think it's the right step forward. Um, you know, I, I would hope that more states would enact it. We also have um, three states that uh, are actually having ballot initiatives regarding voting itself. Alaska has a measure that would let residents register to vote when they apply for what's called their permanent fund dividend, which is money the Alaska government gives people who live there for a full year. So that's one way of making it easier to vote. And then you have Missouri, on the other hand, uh, which will choose whether to make voting harder by requiring a voter to display a photo ID at the polls. And then finally, um, this is one I think is really interesting. Maine is deciding whether or not to allow what's called ranked choice voting for U.S. senators, uh, U.S. representatives, the governor, state senators, and state representatives. Um, And for those who are unfamiliar with ranked choice voting or instant runoff voting, as some people call it, Here's a brief explanation. Essentially, it's a voting system used in single-seat elections when there are more than two candidates. Instead of voting only for a single candidate, you can rank the candidates in order of preference. Ballots are initially counted for each voter's top choice. If a candidate secures more than half of these votes, the candidate wins. It's done. Otherwise, the candidate in last place is eliminated and removed from consideration. The top remaining choices on all ballots are then recounted. This process repeats until one candidate is the top remaining choice of a majority of the voters. This voting system has the effect of avoiding split votes when multiple candidates earn support from like-minded voters. Um, I, I like this idea, Brett, at least to start off on the state level for state elections and see how it goes. Um, and it's one way, another way that people f- who feel like maybe they want to have more choices in elections and don't want to just play the, the role of a spoiler vote like like Ralph Nader, for instance. Um, you know, this is something that they've been calling for. So would you have any thoughts on the measures in these states, Brad? Including well, yeah, I mean, this is something. Uh, let, let's take the Missouri initiative you mentioned. This is something that I have very strong feelings about uh, and really drives me crazy when you have states trying to make it more difficult for people to register to vote and to vote. This is a democracy, which is from two Greek words, demoskratia, meaning rule by the people. And what we should be doing is making it easier for people to register to vote uh, and to vote uh, rather than making it harder. Uh, But you have a lot of states in the last few years controlled by Republican governors uh, and uh, Republican state legislatures who have passed laws uh, that uh, make it harder to vote. And these laws uh, disproportionately uh, affect uh, a Latino and black voters and discourage them from voting. And, you know, in a democracy, we should be doing everything we can to get more people to vote. Uh, but a lot of states are moving in the other direction where they're making it more difficult to vote. A good example is uh, in Florida last in uh, Florida in the 2012 election, uh, basically, uh, you had uh, they cut back on the uh, polling places in, in Florida. Uh, so you had to go further uh, afar if you wanted to vote. Uh, and they cut down voting hours, and we should be doing exactly the opposite. Uh, and these kind of uh, initiatives in Missouri drive me crazy because I think they're really wrong-headed uh, and anti-democratic. 
Brad, I'm so happy you brought that up. I want to just share a piece before we go to break. Um, you're probably familiar with Ari Berman uh, of the nation.com. He wrote a piece uh, in March during the primary elections in Arizona entitled, There Were Five, many of people remember, There Were Five Hour Lines to Vote in Arizona. His title is Because the Supreme Court Gutted the Voting Rights Act. Um, one voter, a naturalized citizen from Guatemala, arrived just before the polls closed at 7 p.m. in downtown Phoenix to vote in Arizona's primary. Uh, when she arrived, the line spanned more than 700 people and almost four blocks, the Arizona Republic uh, reported. She waited in line for five hours, becoming the last voter in the state to cast a ballot at 12.12 a.m. Quote, I'm here to exercise my right to vote, she said shortly before midnight, explaining why she stayed in line. But many other Arizonans left the polls in disgust. The lines were so long because election officials in Phoenix's Maricopa County, the largest in the state, reduced the number of polling places by 70 percent. From 2012 to 2016, from 200 to just 60, one polling place per every 21,000 voters. Election officials said they reduced the number of polling sites to save money, an ill-conceived decision that severely inconvenienced hundreds of thousands of voters. Previously, Maricopa County would have needed to receive federal approval for reducing the number of polling sites because Arizona was one of 16 states where jurisdictions with a long history of discrimination had to submit their voting changes under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. This type of change would very likely have been blocked since minorities make up 40% of Maricopa County's population and reducing the number of polling places would have left minority voters worse off. Section 5 blocked 22 voting changes from taking effect in Arizona since the state was covered under the VRA in 1975 for discriminating against Hispanic and Native American voters. But after the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, Arizona could make election changes without federal oversight. The long lines in Maricopa County were the latest example of the disastrous consequences of that decision. Quote, we are outraged at long lines for Arizona primary, the Arizona Republic wrote in a sharply worded editorial. The paper told stories of voters who left without casting a ballot because of the long lines. Here's what one Maricopa County voter wrote to the Arizona Republic. Quote, I literally went to multiple polling places, a total of five separate times, only to find that the one-hour wait, which I didn't have time for this morning, only increased as the day went on. Eventually, I gave up at 6.40 p.m. when I saw the line at its longest, at least two to three hours. This was the first time in my life I felt genuinely disenfranchised. Quote, disenfranchised was a flash word on Tuesday. Many voters used it. The impacted voters across the country, excuse me, this impacted voters across the country, but some more than others. There were, there were predominantly Latino areas in Maricopa County with no polling places. Quote, it is no coincidence many poor and predominantly Latino areas didn't get a polling place, wrote Arizona Republic columnist Elvia Diaz. The 2016 election is the first in 50 years without the full protections of the Voting Rights Act. Widespread voting problems during the primaries in states like Arizona and North Carolina are a disturbing preview of what could happen on November 8th. So that's why we encourage people to vote early if they have an option to. Make sure that you're registered. If you have a problem voting or have any questions, you can call 866-OUR-VOTE. That's 866 866- O-U-R-V-O-T-E. This is Mark Grimaldi. I'm going to be back with Brad Bannon after the break, and we're going to talk about some more of these ballot initiatives. You can join us at 8886-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show, 8886-LESLIE.
Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Romaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall with you for just over the next half hour. So we talked a little bit about voting changes. Um, also, Brad, I wanted to get your take on the other thing we brought up, which is the ranked choice voting. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with that, but essentially, you know, as we explained, it would give voters some some options where they feel like they wouldn't have to necessarily hurt one candidate to vote for maybe a candidate who was like a third party candidate, essentially prevent like a Ralph Nader type situation well yeah you know actually this is a system that is used in some european countries uh so it's not like it's uh, completely out of thin air uh and there are advantages to it uh you uh, it might give uh, third party candidates more of a chance uh now you know that's one of the realities of american politics is if you're not running as a democrat or republican it is very, very difficult to win an election. Uh, you know, a good example uh, in the presidential election right now, uh, Donald Trump, because he is the Republican nominee for president, automatically got on the ballot in all 50 states. And since Hillary Clinton was the nominee, uh, nominated to be the Democratic nominee, she is on the ballot in all 50 states. But if you're not a Democrat or independent, you have to fight to get on the ballot on every state. And some of the states, I believe, in fact, uh, right now, I think uh, Gary Johnson is on all 50 states, uh, but I believe there are uh, three states uh, where, uh, where uh, Jill Stein's not going to be on the ballot uh, because the restrictions are so onerous. Uh, so I, you know, I think, uh, and, you know, as long as the election laws stay the way they are, you're not going to have, you know, uh, third-party candidates in Congress, and certainly not as president. Uh, so you have to experiment with things like that to uh, give everybody a chance. Yeah, I think this goes back to the larger conversation, Brad. We were talking about making open primaries, um, making it easier for people to vote, not harder to vote, because it's just getting people more involved and invested in our democracy. And I think if you have people doing that early in the process, they're more likely to stay invested, you know, get involved with local government, like Bernie Sanders had pushed during the primaries, you know, don't just make this a one election um, instance. Let's make it a movement and try to get more civically involved in not just, you know, federal and state level, but also local elections which is really important because there's so many people who have been told, you know, ever since Reagan that government is bad and they steer away from it, but then they don't have any involvement in it. And then they say, who are these people representing us? Um, so it really creates a, a, a two-pronged problem, I would say, or even more than that. Um, I want to start this next topic, but uh, before we do, I want to go to um, Michael in the Bronx, who we'll probably start with and then get back to after the break. So, Michael, why don't you uh, go ahead and start with your comments? Uh, yes, first off. Um, going back to what you said about what happened in Arizona with um, someone staying online for five hours, just when you thought you heard it all, um, I guess you guys will remember of a similar situation in Florida that was quite worse, that an elderly woman, who happened to be African-American, stood online for seven hours to vote because of the same stunt that the governor, Rick Scott, pulled in decreasing the number of polls trying to fix the outcome for Florida in terms of the 2012 um, presidential election. Of course, that backfired, that went to Obama. But when he decreased it, he was quoted saying, all right, done for who was it, Romney at that time. So I cannot imagine how in the hell 
these Republicans, especially Trump, is going to say the election is rigged, it's crooked Hillary, and we right. have all the incidents. Michael, we're going to come back with you. We only have about 10 seconds, but that's a great point. That woman, I'll, I'll look up her name, but she was a guest of President Obama at the State of the Union, and President Obama and Romney's people tried to work together after elections uh, to fix those voting rights, but it got blocked by Republicans. Welcome back to the Leslie Marshall Show. This is Mark Grimaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall. Uh, we were talking with Michael in the Bronx. Michael, you are correct. The woman that was honored uh, and invited by Michelle Obama at one of President Obama's State of the Unions, State of the Union addresses following the 2012 presidential election. Her name is Desaline Victor, and she was uh, 102 years old. Uh, it looks like about, excuse me, I think she was 101 at the time of the election, and she waited uh, hours in line to vote last year. It looks like she waited three hours in line to vote, but you know, other people in Florida waited as, as long as seven hours in line to vote uh, in the 2012 presidential election. You just heard my story that I read, uh, or not my story, but the story that I read from Ari Berman at The Nation, how this election cycle and the primaries, uh, people in the largest county, Maricopa County in Arizona, already had to wait five hours to vote, uh, up to five hours to vote after 70% of their polling places had been reduced. Apparently they are supposedly going to be fixing that uh, for election day for the general election, uh, but only time will tell. Uh, Michael, go ahead and finish with your thoughts, please. Yes, thank you. See, I brought that up because, not just to add to what you said about the Phoenix, but I am so sick and tired and outraged of the garbage spewed out by many of these Republicans, particularly Trump and Trump supporters, they're going to say the election is rigged, crooked Hillary and all that stuff, when in fact the documents and evidence shows that he's mainly the crook. He's the one that's been engaging in the um, abuse towards women, abuse towards um, minorities, inciting such um, attacks towards um towards those targets, always constantly going on Hillary's emails and Benghazi's, which she's been cleared up several times. It's a doggone distraction, and the followers are, are just taking it, you know, verbatim. I mean, I know there are right-wingers that are listening to this. I want to pose this question to them as to wonder how, if I could use the word foolish, are they? And that is, if Donald Trump said the enemy was Peter Pan or Fred Flintstone or the fairy freaking godmother, would you take that verbatim? No, that's the problem. I mean, he talks about, quote-unquote, rigged elections, but if anything, it's brought up that there's voter suppression happening through uh, archaic voter ID laws after it's been proven that the instances of voter fraud, I mean, you have a better chance of being struck by lightning. So I couldn't agree with you more, Michael. Next, we're going to go uh, to some other callers in a minute. But first, I want to get to um, Brad. D.C. statehood is on the ballot there. Uh, this measure asks District of Columbia residents whether the D.C. Council should petition Congress to create a new state out of the nation's capital. It would split the district into a residential state with a small federal district in the middle of it for government buildings and monuments. I think this is a no-brainer, but then there's the problem of getting Congress to act on it. What are your thoughts on this measure and the future of D.C. statehood in general, Brad? 
Well, uh, first of all, uh, the question that is on the ballot in D.C. will pass overwhelmingly uh, and die there uh, because uh, you have it's Many people believe uh, the only way you can make D.C. a state uh, is to pass a constitutional amendment uh, because the Constitution uh, reserves uh, the uh, D.C. as the seat of government, uh, and the reality is it's not going anywhere in Congress. Um, if you had demo- large Democratic majorities in Congress, you might be able to get it through. Uh, but re- last thing, I mean, this is a classic example of race here. Uh, Republicans know if D.C. becomes a state, and has two United States senators, uh, they're both going to be black, and they're both going to be Democrats. Uh, and uh, Republican in Congress don't want uh, any more of either of them. Uh, so uh, I think it's very unlikely D.C. will get the statehood in the, in the near future. Uh, you know, you could make the same argument about Puerto Rico. Uh, why isn't Puerto Rico a state? I mean, Hawaii's a state, and that's a lot further from the United States than Puerto Rico. Uh, but again, uh, Republicans in Congress uh, fear, probably justifiably, that if uh, Puerto Rico uh, has uh, two United States senators, uh, like Rhode Island, uh, you're going to have two more Democrats in the Senate um, who are probably both Latino. Uh, so uh, I, I think uh, D.C. statehood is... Uh, is uh, not coming anytime soon because uh, Republicans are dead set against it. Brad, politics aside, I mean, on principle, it does seem ridiculous that these people who live in D.C. are, you know, United States citizens. They live where our nation's capital is, and they have no political representation in the federal government. No, they don't, and it's ridiculous. I mean, people in Washington, D.C., just like people in the uh, 50 states, uh, have to pay federal taxes. Uh, They have to, uh, you know serve in the armed forces, and they're subject to the same uh, laws that everybody else is. The difference between D.C. and the other 50 states is they don't get to make it them. Uh, And, you know, it's interesting uh, when uh, uh, George W. Bush was president, uh, oh, no, when Bill Clinton was president, uh, if you looked at the presidential limo, it had a D.C. license plate which said, no taxation without representation, uh, because that's the sort of slogan in D.C. for statehood. When George W. Bush became president, uh, he took that license plate off and used a plain D.C. Uh, plate. And when Barack Obama was president, he put the back on the plate that says no taxation without representation. And that's sort of a basic principle of American democracy. That's how the American Revolution started. And it's ridiculous. D.C. residents can't vote uh, and have any say in Congress. It's quite ironic when the theme of the Tea Party supposedly was no taxation without representation and Republicans had no problem and Congress had no problem latching onto that. But then you have an actual clear example of it with D.C. having no federal representatives and they don't act on it because, like you said, 
pure politics, which is extremely frustrating. Um, next, we're going to go to uh, guns. The first uh, ballot initiative uh, that we have in two states is in Indiana and Kansas, uh, the right to hunt and fish. Although neither measure explicitly mentions guns, both states are proposing amendments that protect hunting and fishing as a constitutional right. Um, then we have in three states, Maine, California, and Nevada, background checks on the ballot. Uh, the measures proposed in these three states would require a background check before someone buys a gun. Uh, California's measure requires a background check to buy ammunition and also bans large capacity ammo magazines. California is also proposing to prevent people who have stolen guns in the past from possessing guns again. And then finally, in the state of Washington, uh, which I believe already requires uh, a background check through state laws, uh, they have a measure that would allow people to get a court order that would temporarily ban people who show signs of mental illness or violence or another behavior that might indicate they could harm themselves or others from possessing firearms. Any thoughts on the ballot initiatives I mentioned regarding guns, Brad? Well, you know, this is a you know an example, and like the sort of marijuana questions we talked about in the first hour, uh, where uh, you have a situation uh, where states are frustrated uh, by inaction at the national level, so individual states are taking uh, you know measures into their own hands. The California uh, ballot initiative uh, is a good example, um, and this goes back to the power of special interest groups that we talked about in the first hour. Um, two years ago, uh, President Obama asked uh, Congress uh, to uh, pass a uh, universal background check, which meant that anybody anywhere who bought a gun had to go through a background check. And at the time, in all the national polls, about 90% of the public thought that was a good, reasonable idea. But when it got to the uh, Senate, uh, the Senate killed it. And the reality is a good example of why the Senate killed it. There's a Republican uh, U.S. senator named Jody Ernst uh, who was elected in uh, Iowa in 2010. During her campaign, she got $2 million from the National Rifle Association. And you can bet she wasn't going to vote for background checks. Uh, and so states like California are very frustrated uh, by the inability or unwillingness of the national government to uh, have background checks. So they're taking things into their own hands, and they should. Brad, you bring up a good point about public polling uh, as well. The latest um, polling, if you can go, I know a site you've shared with us, Brad, which is really great, is it's called pollingreport.com, and you can just go to pollingreport.com forward slash guns. The most recent polling um, was actually from a few months ago, towards the end of June, from uh, Quinnipiac University, uh, which was people were asked, do you support or oppose requiring background checks for all gun buyers? 93% support, 6% oppose. That included 90% of Republicans and 93% of independents. You also have the question in that same poll of do you support or oppose stricter gun laws in the United States? 54% support, 42% oppose, and then a more recent poll uh, about a week after from Suffolk University and USA Today, uh, specifically the question was, Hillary Clinton has called for a ban on assault weapons. Do you support or oppose this idea? 56% support, 
34% oppose. And finally, in that same poll, quote, do you support or oppose the propose the proposal to ban gun sales to people who are on the no-fly list? 76% support, 14% oppose. So the polls are very clear on this. Brad, we're going to go back to you and uh, a couple calls after this quick commercial break. If you'd like to join us, the number to do so is 8886-LESLIE. That's 888-653-7543. This is Mark Rimaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE. to the Leslie Marshall Show. Mark Romaldi and Brad Bannon in for Leslie Marshall for uh, one more segment. Uh, we were talking about gun control, and uh, I know we have uh, at least one call on that. Reggie in Georgia is on line uh, three. There we go. Sorry about that. Okay, Reggie, go ahead with your thoughts. A happy Tuesday to you yourself, Mark Romaldi and Brad Bannon, too. Uh, Hi, Reggie. How are you doing? Just fine, Brad. How do we promote or pass more gun control laws and uh, gun safety rights and gun background checks in spite of the, you know, radical right-wing gun nut freak, uh, conservative freaks who think that the government is coming in to take their precious, beloved guns away from them or violating their Second Amendment rights to, you know, to, to bear arms? Well, I think one way is what, you know, Brad and I are talking about right now, which is through state ballot initiatives. You don't have to rely on Congress and the federal government, which clearly right now is very, um, I would say, poisoned by money from the National Rifle Association, one of the biggest lobbying groups uh, in the United States right now. Um, that's one, And they're going to fight ballot measures on the state level. However, we've seen more success there than sweeping legislation on the federal level. Uh, the other way, the other way, I think, is through um, potentially another theme that we've been talking about is through the Supreme Court, because if you have a fifth liberal justice, you can potentially revisit the decision regarding defining the Second Amendment to somehow, for some reason, just not include the provision about a well-regulated militia, um, which could definitely change how gun laws are passed and interpreted uh, in the United States. Um, Brad, do you want to comment on that? Well, yeah, uh, realistically, Reggie, uh, there's only one way that you're going to get stricter gun controls. There's no way of getting any kind of gun control uh, measure through Congress uh, because the NRA is controlled the Republicans, and they're never you're never going to get it out of Congress, and not in the near future. And the reality is that uh, the only way you're going to get it is the way Mark said, is through the Supreme Court. You know, even if Hillary Clinton, let's say Hillary Clinton gets elected, and she has a Democratic Senate, let's say you know Democrats have a 52-48 majority in the Senate, which is about right, it doesn't 
doesn't really matter because you can't get anything done in the Senate unless you have 60 votes. So you're going to continue to have gridlock uh, in Washington. And the only people who can really change it is the Supreme Court. And, you know, I think we uh, talked about this earlier. Uh, up until 1970, uh, the Supreme Court, uh, no, actually it was closer to 1980, uh, the Supreme Court interpreted the Second Amendment uh, as meaning literally, okay, you can't stop somebody from belonging to a state militia or a state having a militia. But then, um, after Reagan had the uh, chance to appoint several justices, they turned to the uh, interpretation now, uh, which is that any attempt to control guns is a violation of the constitutional right to bear arms. And the only way that's going to get changed, and it's not going to get changed by Congress, I can guarantee you, is to have another progressive judge or so on the Supreme Court uh, so we can go back to the reasonable interpretation that the court used uh, before the Reagan appointees came in in the 1980s. Uh, and realistically, that's the only way it's going to happen. Thank you uh, for the call there, Reggie. Next, we are going to. Sorry. Next, we're going to go to Jake in Eureka, California, who wants to ask a different question about the election. Uh, Jake, go ahead. Right, uh, going back to the issue of uh, third-party candidates, uh, two third-party candidates have uh, gotten publicity uh, through the mainstream media: um, Libertarian Gary Johnson, Green Party's uh, Jill Stein, uh, both of whom uh, their poll numbers are plummeting, which makes it clear that neither one are probably likely to have much of an impact on the results of the presidential election. But strangely enough, there's an independent conservative presidential candidate by the name of Evan McMullen, who's in a three-way race in the state of Utah and polling well in Idaho, um, apparently due to the Mormon community's intense dislike for Donald Trump. Um, what impact will Evan McMullen's candidacy have on the Republican Party going forward, at least in the Mountain West uh, region? I think, that Brad, you're a great person to answer yeah. this with your election expertise. Well, yeah, I mean, you make a good point. Uh, you know, we talked a lot about Jill Stein and Gary Johnson, but the only independent candidate with any realistic chance of winning any electoral votes is uh, Evan McMullen in Utah. Uh, and he, pro he has a good chance of winning Utah's six electoral votes, and that essentially takes them out of Donald Trump's column. Uh, and uh, I think... Yeah, I think uh, Evan McMullen-type Republicans uh, who are not uh, backward like Donald Trump. Uh, now, McMullen is pretty conservative on most issues, but he's not a bigot or a racist. Uh, and that's the direction the Republican Party is going to have to go if it survives. Uh, and I think uh, when Trump loses, and I think he will lose, uh, and I think, Trump may drag down a good chunk of the Republican Party with them, uh, you know, knocking off Republican senators and uh, members of the House of Representatives. I think there's going to be a lot of soul-searching in the Republican Party uh, to say, hey, we need to find a way to structure our nomination system so we can get somebody like Evan McMullen or John Kasich nominated uh, instead of some, you know, crazy person like Donald Trump. Jake, any thoughts? Well, I agree. I mean, it can't get any worse than Trump. That's as bad as it gets. 
Yeah, and you know, the other thing that's interesting you bring up, Brad, from the electoral math process is Utah has six electoral votes, so even if it doesn't go in Hillary Clinton's column, robbing Donald Trump of that is pretty interesting. I mean, that's the same amount of electoral votes, I believe, as uh, Nevada, New Mexico. I mean, New Hampshire only has four, so six, you know, definitely is a a definitely sizable enough margin that it would make a difference. Um, You know, speaking again about these ballot initiatives, Brad, I want to go back to the point you brought up um, as a broad theme of this about how the country is becoming coming more progressive and basically uh you know we've about a minute minute and a half left i just want you to close kind of with your final thoughts on that well you know honestly i do believe we're in the middle of a political realignment uh that's going to result in more progressive politics you already see it on issues that we've talked about today uh Gun control is another example. If you look at the national polls and gun control, millennials overwhelmingly support uh, restrictions. Uh, and the reality is on any social issue, guns, uh, gay rights, civil rights, millennials are incredibly liberal. And they're becoming more and more a bigger part of the voting bloc in the United States. And as they do, and the baby boomers decline in influence, we are going to have a more liberal politics. Uh, you know, so one, a Democratic consultant once said, uh, demography is destiny, and he was absolutely right. Brad, absolutely great job today. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow Brad and uh, get more of his thoughts and his work uh, on Twitter at Brad Bannon. That's B-R-A-D-B-A-N-N-O-N. His website is BannonCR.com. This has been Mark Grimaldi as well. And for Leslie Marshall, you can follow me on Twitter at Mark J. Grimaldi. That's M-A-R-K-J-G-R-I-M-A-L-D-I. A big thanks, as always, to my assistant producer, Andrew Tomedy, for all of his great work today. Leslie will be back with you tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Mark Levine's in from 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern. Thank Thank you and have a great evening. You ever hear something and know the world will never be the same? Houston, we have liftoff. Well, wait until you hear this one. Half price coffee. That's right. Get into McDonald's weekdays before 10.30 a.m. for any size premium roast coffee or iced coffee. Both made with 100% Arabica beans, both half the price. Good is brewing. And that's the sound of your morning changing. Limited time only. May not be combined with any offer or combo meal at participating McDonald's. How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola Energy. Energy you want, taste you love.